And when I was younger, I remembered meeting Rosa Parks marching no down way. Woodward Avenue in the front. We marched in a civil rights march down Woodward Avenue. Little did I know that years later she would pass away here in the city of Detroit and her nephew contacted me to open up the probate estate for Rosa Parks. All right, everybody, welcome to Cases Gone Wild. This is going to be a crazy show today. We have one of my friends, a great titan of the industry in probate law, Darren Finling's here today. Thank you for joining us on Cases Gone Wild, brought to you by Marco Law. You know, we talk about on this show some of the craziest cases, and we bring in crazy guests from all over the country and all over the industry to talk about. And today we're gonna, we have some crazy cases in store for you. I can't wait to tell you about it. If you like us, please leave us a review, follow us. And remember, you can watch, there's a video, okay? We have people fly in from Texas to video this show and we had to get dressed up. So I had to wake up and put on a suit. Darren has on his his probate pro hoodie, which I want one after this show. But please watch us if you want, not while you're driving. Please be safe out there or else you'll be calling Marco Law. So I'd like to get right into it. Introduce you to Darren Finling. Darren Finling does what's called probate law, which we're going to talk about today. But let's tell the people a little bit about you because you did a bio for me. And you were born in the back of a 1969 Buick Regal. What happened? Yeah, why not? You know, after being the fourth kid of my mother, I apparently just fell out of her in the backseat of the car on the way to the hospital. I was actually born and maybe conceived in the backseat of that car and delivered there, cut the umbilical cord in the backseat of the car. Again, no joke, real story, born in the backseat of the car. That's awesome, man. I wish I had an exciting <laughs> birth story like that, but that's awesome. I wonder where that Buick Regal is today, man. Yeah, probably in a junkyard somewhere covered in uh, uh, post-birth yeah. material. <laughs> uh, okay, you had, a, you had quite a history. You danced down... Uh, the inner city Baptist church, you danced down the aisles. Tell me about that. What happened there? Well, I grew up in a wild household with, uh, not a lot of parenting. Uh, there was a nanny. The nanny went to church. I would show up at church. I was the only person that was not of dark skin there. And I learned to dance down the aisles in this very lively Baptist church. That was my childhood. That sounds like fun. It sounds like a good experience too for a kid. It was a, a great awakening to understand other cultures, to understand other people, and to be able to express yourself without any shame or concern about how you're going to look. I like it. And then what happened? So you went to, did you go to U of M? I went to U of M undergrad and then U of D law school and then started out on my own in a business with family members to grow a law practice did you always do we're going to talk today about probate law okay now probate law may sound yeah not as wild as you know some of the other areas but you've told me some of the things you want to talk about today you have some wild stories yeah and so tell people about what is probate law because any my firm okay personal injury we need probate lawyers right it, we need them we kind of have a relationship where my clients depending on the case can't even go to court without a probate lawyer. But t tell us, what is probate law and why do we all need it? Yeah, I'll tell you what probate is not. 
My kids call me the prostate pro because they think it's funny. Probate is not anything to do with probation. People call all the time saying, hey, I'm on probation. Nothing to do with that. It has to do with death. It has to do with estate planning. It has to do with brain injury and guardianship and conservatorship. It is that full gamut of law that involves those areas. And the reason that you and our office work so closely together is for somebody to be able to file a lawsuit, to have standing, they need a representative if somebody has died or if they're brain injured and they can't make their own decisions. Yeah, so like we just worked on a case uh, where Unfortunately, we're going to talk about that case today. The client was so injured that he wasn't able to make decisions for himself. He wasn't able to function in society. And so we had to go to what's called probate court. There's a special court in Wayne County. It's called probate court who have probate judges who are different judges to do that. Do you do to wills? Like if someone wants to do a will in case they're going to pass away, which we're all, we all are, but a will to you know, pass on things like that? Do you, do you do that as well? Absolutely. And I promise you, you will die eventually, John. <laughs> yeah, and we always tell people, you never know when that's going to happen. So of course, prepare, do estate planning work. Uh, talking about crazy, yesterday uh, in our office with estate planning, we had a call in, uh, actually a client that came in, and she came in to meet with one of the attorneys in our office that runs a dog and cat rescue facility. Oh, that's a, a nice thing. And when, a, when we use starting up to when we say estate planning, we're talking about people going to a lawyer to help figure out what is going to happen with all their stuff, right? I mean, essentially, is that it? Or That's it. You need to plan. You need to prepare. You do that by creating a will, a trust, a document to ensure that your intentions, your wishes are going to be fulfilled after you have died or if you're catastrophically injured, or maybe you have a stroke and you no longer can make decisions, you can nominate somebody through this plan. We call that plan an estate plan. Yeah. It's part of this larger umbrella area of law we call probate. Yeah, you gotta do it. It's like, you know, it's like one of those things that is, uh, it's like taking a car, like I had a car in high school that I ne never wanted to take in to the mechanic because I knew he was going to tell me everything that was wrong with it. It was just like an unpleasurable experience. That's right. Now, but you got to do it do because it. it's something that you need to do. And, you know, I did it. I, I went and I, I went to you and I got an estate plan, even though, uh, you know, it's it's not one of those things that people wake up and say, right. let's, I can't wait to get my estate plan <laughs> yeah. today. But it's I'm like, sorry to interrupt. It's like a plumber. You don't, you don't want to hang out with the plumber or go to a plumber until there's a leak. And most people don't even bother calling the estate planning lawyer until they're about to go on a long journey or vacation or flight and they start worrying about yeah. their mortality or they accumulate wealth or they age. Yeah. But in fact, people should be doing this early on in their careers as they start accumulating wealth. So tell me about this lady. So lady comes in, she she runs a dog rescue or how does that work? No, the opposite. The lawyer in my office, this great estate planning lawyer in my office named Sydney, the person comes in and says to Sydney, I'd like to create a will. In that will, I want to make sure that upon my death, my dog is immediately euthanized placed in the casket with me and buried with me. What? And the estate planning lawyer is like, are you kidding me? I'm a dog and cat rescue person. No way am I doing this. That's why. So first, can legally, uh, uh, let's, can you say, 
when I die, you need to euthanize my dog and put them in the grave with me? You know, I don't know if there's any law that prohibits you from euthanizing your dog at any time you possibly want. However, there are probably some animal protection laws that exist that I'm unaware of. However, I will tell you that the lawyer ethically said, I can't do this. I'm not putting in your will that your dog is going to be immediately euthanized. Yeah, yeah. That is not good. Yeah, that, wow, I can't imagine that funeral. That would be a little weird, open casket with the dog in there. And John, I got another one that you just reminded me of when we were talking about odd things around estate planning. I went earlier in my career to a hospital to visit a client who, during the AIDS epidemic, was dying of AIDS. Oh, my God. The person was on their last breath, and we had met with them, established how they wanted their estate plan to be done. And I went to the hospital to do the signing. During the signing, I placed the documents to the client. He was very So frail. the signing of like a will kind That's of? That's right. Okay. Exactly, a will. And with a will, you have to sign the will. And most estate planning lawyers have you initial each page of the will. So there's no like dispute later. Like, you know, you saw like with Aretha Franklin, they're finding like wills in the couch and exactly. stuff. And in they're fact, like, which, which will is it what? We've actually had cases in which people have substituted pages of the will. They've gone on their own printer and substituted the page to change the distribution. So you typically initial each page. It's signed and witnessed by two people. That's the typical signing So process. So there's no dispute, right? Because we've heard about some of these crazy disputes because the person's dead. They can't say, no, 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 no. I wanted this to go here. I wanted this to go there. They have to speak through the will, right? Precisely. And that's the certainty in this is to create this will. So where I'm in the hospital, the, the noises around me, the beeps, the noises, the nurses, the doctors are there. And we're signing this will. He initials page one. He initials page two. Are you right there with him? I'm right next to him. He initials page three and codes. Right there. Right there in the middle of the signing. And my heart sinks. I'm a young lawyer saying, oh my, what just happened? Because the will was giving a distribution that was different than had he died without a will. So the ramifications were enormous. He codes. I freak out. I leave the room. Doctors are in there reviving him. Oh my Thankfully, gosh. He revives. The next day I come in. He signs the will, and I learned a very important lesson, John. Start Sign with the, the last page. Start with the last page. Sign the will, and then initial And then thereafter. go back. Yeah, but don't bother with think, the initials. Who would think that? That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, you've so, so do you do, like, there's lawsuits over wills. Absolutely. I mean, I don't do them, but your office does them, right? I mean, what's called probate litigation. You basically... Do you get a jury with that, by the way, or is it a judge? Okay. Yeah, you can have a judge or a jury. Okay. These are called will contest cases, and they're disputes over the legitimacy of a will. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's real sad because sometimes, especially when like a large amount of money comes in, I've seen families fight, and it can tear families apart. I had a case uh, that I got involved with. I've had two recently where another firm asked me to come in and help because... Let, let, let's break this down. So if somebody dies, let's say somebody, uh, in, in one case, I had a woman who was at the Department of Corrections who is having seizures, okay? She's having these horrible, horrible seizures. And 
the nurse and some of these department of corrections and these prison doctors are like the worst. It's like they can't find a job anywhere else. So they go to a low paying like department of corrections jail. It's depressing. I mean, I, I don't blame that blame that, you know, they, it's hard to find good qualified people. But they had this bottom of the barrel nurse in there and this lady's having a seizure. And the nurse was laughing at her and saying, dance, 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 dance. And, uh, you know, seizures are serious. Well, they never gave her the medicine. She died, okay, while they were mocking her, saying, oh, look, she's dancing. Uh, and when somebody dies, so back in the day, wasn't it when somebody died, they couldn't bring a lawsuit because there was nobody to bring a lawsuit like hundreds of years ago, I believe? At least I remember reading this in law school, right? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, well, I'm not exactly sure when you say the lawsuit, you mean to challenge the will. Yeah, well, we're getting there, right? Yeah. So I'm just talking about generally, like, let's say you're walking across the street 200 years ago, you get hit by a car. Oh. There was no wrongful death. Right. So, uh, but now if you pass away, like in this case, the lady ha who had the seizure at the hospital, at the uh, prison, you, we go to a probate lawyer like you, who then creates what's called an estate. That's right. right. And that's, that's like, yeah, the best what, way what to, is it? I mean, it's like yeah, this legal fake thing, right? Exactly. The best way to describe it, because this word estate can be quite confusing to people. For some people, it means there's money. Yeah. For, for many, they die with no money. So why are you calling it an estate? So we typically call it a probate file at the probate court. It's essentially a filing at the probate court. It's a procedure. So probate is a procedure that begins by the filing of documents there's a magic ticket called the letter of authority that's granted to an individual. We used to call that person an executor or an executrix. Now they're called personal representative and that gives them the legal authority to stand in the shoes of that person that died to be able to file a lawsuit, right. for example, for wrongful death. Because you to be can't able to pursue. do it without it. That's right. It's the magic ticket necessary. And the reason it's so critical is that you may have one son go to your firm and the daughter go to another firm. We have that all the time. That's and I right. call you and I'm like, look, I got the son of a dead person in here. Uh, it, it's a horrible thing. What do we do? And you, th we have to sort that out. That's why we, that's why I hire you. That's right. But th in this case, this, the, the deceased, so this, this person who had the seizure, her mom uh, was wanted justice and said, this is yeah. horrible. She should, I told the prison that she had seizure disorder she had this medicine. She'd been struggling with seizures for, you know, a decade. And the mom became what's called the personal representative, I guess. So the mom was kind of was kind of the point of contact. Now, what happened in this case, without going through all the stuff, is a lot of money. They got a lot of money, millions of yeah. dollars, because it was on video. It was horrible. And then, Darren, people started coming out of the woodwork, yeah. which is unfortunate. We had like... Like, oh, I'm the dad who hasn't seen this daughter who sure. passed away in like 20 years suddenly come and say, I want money. Oh, I loved her. Yeah. It is it is kind of uh, uh, shameful in a way because you just see it tear people apart and then everybody wants money. That's right. And, and often the glue that held that uh, dysfunctional family together is the person that died. They die and all hell breaks loose. The family fractures, fighting ensues. You mentioned something about fighting over money. What's most interesting in my practice is it's often not about the amount of money. We have litigation over kitchen knives. 
many, many litigations over the cremains of the person that died. So like the, the, like ashes. the urn or whatever? The ashes. I'll give you a, a, a quick story. We had a case in which the son and the daughter were fighting over many things and we went to mediation. This is a dispute resolution with a judge. We show up at mediation. My client walks in. The, the mediator judge says, let's begin. And my client stands up and says, your honor, before we begin, I want to do something. He walks over and he takes a case that he had brought in and pulls up an eight foot projector style image of his father. Then reaches down to another bag, places the urn on the table, slides it to the middle of the table and says, I want my father here during this mediation. Oh my gosh. And the judge kind of is set back and it set the tone for the mediation. So no different than at the end of the year, doctors speak of all the unique things in the ER room, the, the unique things that were placed in the orifices of people that walked into the hospital during the past year. You've probably read yeah, these yeah. crazy articles of There's everything crazy. that's I gone into the I just saw orifice. one like, it, like this Instagram model had a candy cane that got stuck where woo, you, I can't and even talk about it yeah. on the show. But yeah. Well, that is, that is probate. Every day at my office, it's like that. There's something stuck in the orifice. You sit and listen to the phone calls that come into my office. You can't make this stuff up. You spend an hour and listen to the wild calls of brain injured people, mentally ill people, families that are grieving, fighting every day at the office. Anybody interested in listening in, contact me. You can sit next to me and listen to these incredible calls. Well, tell this me is some real stories. Life. Tell me some of your other crazy probate stories yeah. because I have some, but it's just fighting about money, which is, it's sad to, to see people do that. Um, after somebody's died and, and um, you know, I'm sure that a lot of the individuals are rolling in their graves, you know, seeing Absolutely. some of the stuff that happened. Okay, tell me about some more crazy probate. Cases gone wild. You know you're on Cases Gone Wild. So tell me the wildest cases, Darren, that you've seen. Absolutely. Well, there's so many, but let's talk about one that happened earlier a few years ago. We had a case in which we had a client, a little old lady who decided that everywhere she went, she was going to drive around with a mannequin, a life mannequin Stop it. of a person that appeared to be her husband or her partner. Like Weekend she, at Bernie's? Yes, drove around everywhere with the mannequin. And so she dies. My office goes to the house, including myself, to hoard her house, to find the assets, to find if there's a will. I bring a young law clerk with me into the house and unbeknownst to me the mannequin is sitting on the toilet oh my gosh so when we walk into the house i ask each person in the office to go look in different areas to see if we can find a will and we know that the mannequin's sitting on the toilet and i tell this young law clerk please check in the bathroom sometimes people put their wills in safe places like a bathroom yeah yeah she walks into the bathroom sees the mannequin on the toilet pees her pants screams and runs out of the house hilarious we still joke about this every time i see why this did this very lady put look. this mannequin on the toilet people did, did are it, odd John. Oh people gosh. are odd there's no there's no normal 
person that exists anymore. No, no. Well, I'm definitely not normal. That's for sure. Uh, and speaking of, so that brings up an interesting point. The will. Okay, when I first did a will, I thought like it had to be filed with a court or something, but that's not the case. Apparently, like, isn't it true that you can have a will on like a bar napkin and you could put it on your shelf and that's a valid will? Can Absolutely. you tell, tell me about that? Absolutely. A will has to meet certain minimal requirements. Now, remember, John, you remember the famous cases of like a miner, a, ca uh, a caver who gets trapped in a cave and they write the will, their last wishes, actually on the wall of, of the, the cave. cave. So we have got- Is that cases. a valid will? Absolutely. We've got cases that exist on napkins, on envelopes, inside Bibles. We've got ca uh, cases that exist in which recently somebody wrote a suicide note on a mobile device, a cell phone. No and the way. the Court of Appeals ruled that that was a appropriate, valid, last will and testament of the individual. So, so they, on their notes on like their iPhone They actually or wrote out a, 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 a will and actually identified it was the first digital will that was allowed in the state of Michigan. And it, the Court of Appeals ruled it was valid, a valid expression and intention of that person's last will and testament. But you don't have to, it doesn't even matter where the will is stored. It could be stored at the probate court, but more often it's stored among the personal property. And remember with Aretha Franklin, it was stored under the cushion of the couch in which she slept. Yeah, that's crazy. So let me ask, where should a person put a will? Like, if you don't file it centrally, because it, people, like you said, you had to go in this lady's house and look around, rummage around to try to find the will. Like, where would you recommend the will be? Like, I think my will's in like a safe yeah. at my house, but like, wh where should I put it? Well, that's a good place. As long as people know, the people that need to get to that will, know where you've put the will. Don't hide the will. Don't yeah. shove it under the mattress so that people have to go on an Easter egg hunt for the will. So if you're going to put it in a safe deposit box, or if you're going to put it in your lock box that you can buy at any store now, yeah. make sure people know where it is and know how to get to it. Because very often we get a call at our office saying, I know there's a will. I don't I know where, where it, is. it is. Well, what if there's, okay, multiple wills, like Aretha Franklin. So Aretha Franklin, famous... Very famous, famous, famous singer. Uh, my understanding is there was a big court battle over hers because there was like one will found in the couch cushions. Then there's another will found somewhere else. But that's what happens, right? Sometimes people make multiple wills. They change their mind. That's right. Right? You know, they they change their mind over the course and they change their wishes. So what do you do if you have multiple wills? Is it the last will wins? How does that yeah. work? And that's why it's called the last will and testament. Most wills will have a provision that says, I revoke any prior will that's been created, but some don't. And in fact, sometimes you have to read multiple documents together to create the last will. However, in most circumstances, the will that is last dated is the controlling will. And we look at it like, onion layers. You just keep peeling back the layers. So if there's multiple wills and a will fails on the outer layer, the more recent one, you just go to the next will and so on and so forth. Should you destroy your previous wills? Like if you do a new will, should you rip up your old one? Yeah, we, may, we want them to clearly delineate that it's revoked. So either cutting it, shredding it, writing the word revoked is a good practice. The last will should not be difficult to find them. Yeah. And what's interesting, John, as you can imagine, people 
are facing difficult times with their own mortality, but even more difficult, it's communicating their expressed wishes to their family during their lifetime because it's painful. People have painful relationships. People have disenfranchised family. And in their will, they're often removing, disinheriting others in the will. And they don't express to them during their lifetime. They wait and surprise them at death. That is not a good That's practice. like the famous movie scene where everybody's huddles in the lawyer's office and then he reads off like, all the assets go to, and then, you know, it's like, okay. and then everybody gets upset, right? The reading of the will, which is, which is fake. Meaning it's for TV, it's for the movies. In fact, people call and say, there hasn't been a reading of the will. We don't have a reading of the will. We just send you the will. And say, here's what's up. That's right. Here's what's up. It's great drama for TV. And you reminded me, we had one recently in which the individual who died was quite wealthy. The person that died was to this other person, a very, very close family friend. And in the will, he announces that he's giving to this young man $2 million. I call the young man to say, hey, I want you to know you were listed in this person's will. And the person was quite joyful. Oh, yeah, right. How honored. Thank you. How much? $2 million. Silence on the phone. The young man says, tell me more. What did it say? I read him the provision. He learns through the distribution that that person who awarded him $2 million was actually his biological father. And he never he had knew? been living a lie. And the money, the joy of the gift was far outweighed by the crisis this young man went through learning that the person that he thought was his father was no longer his father and that he had actually been born or uh, biologically given birth or created by this person who awarded him $2 million. That's crazy. And that's why, John, you should tell people during lifetime, it's not fair to surprise them after. Yeah, don't wait. Don't wait. Because life, we got to take every day as a gift, right? Amen. You know, so let's talk about what happens because we worked on a case recently together, very well-known case uh, involving the city of Detroit. And I think mm. there's a lot of lessons to be uh, to discuss on this case, it's first of all, it's a case gone wild. Okay, this 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 guy's walking across the street in Detroit. He's literally walking in a crosswalk across the street. He looks over to his right, and there's a massive tire bouncing down the road that had come off a city of Detroit Department of Transportation van, yeah. and it blasted this dude and caused massive injuries okay and i get the case and it is uh the guy severely injured to the point where he has massive brain damage i think the doctor said a third of his brain was destroyed by this tire smashing his skull into the pavement and the guy i immediately see that he's not able to take care of himself he's not able to function and he needs help so you became what's called the conservator for this individual. What is a conservator just in a nutshell? Sure, it's, it's a legal representative, a fiduciary, we say, meaning I am now obligated. I stand in the fiduciary responsibility to ensure that all of his legal and economic or financial matters are taken care of. Even though he's alive, because this guy's alive, alive. That's right. But he's 
severely injured and really not able to take care of himself. Right. It's kind of like a guardianship over their money. So I became in charge of their legal matter. And remember, as you know, it was on the eve of trial. You are about to have this very important trial in court and you didn't have a person who was going to be able to cap capably manage his way through the trial. Right. Or money. Right, because in this case, the the jury ended up giving a verdict of over ten million dollars. You can't just it doesn't you can't just go. I can't ethically go to a a, a client who can't even care for himself and say, "Here's ten million dollar check on your lawsuit." It would, I mean, who it wouldn't even make it into the bank. That's right, and and even uh, for the jury's perspective, imagine a juror thinking, "Should I award a large verdict to an individual?" who is having a really difficult life. Even though he was catastrophically injured, his life is not in good shape. What is going to be used with this money? Is it right. going to be productive? Juries always want to know where the money's going to go. That's why it's really hard. If, you know, if I, I might have a client who has the best case in the world from a plaintiff's perspective, like, like, you know, they're seriously hurt. They deserve compensation, but they're maybe a drug addict. And even though jurors feel bad, juries don't want to give millions of dollars to a person that they think is going to go out to the corner and use it to buy heroin or something. Absolutely. And John, I think that the strategy of utilizing a professional conservator like myself in that trial was a wise move. And as you described, a wild case. Wild case. Wild. The idea that somebody is going to be walking down the street and get bulldozed by a tire that wasn't and wheel that wasn't placed correctly on the vehicle by the city of Detroit. But the brilliance in this strategy was that the jurors were willing to award a large sum of money because they knew that with the professional conservator, those assets were going to be protected, protected for his benefit and utilized to enhance and improve this person's life for the remainder of their life. So, so let's talk about how this worked because this is, this was very wild. So we had a trial the plaintiff who got hit by the tire was so severely injured and, and brain damaged, he couldn't even participate in the trial, which puts me in a horrible position because my client isn't even at the trial. Right. My client's so hurt, he can't even appear at the trial. You testified. So tell our listeners like how that works. I mean, I literally called you, Darren Finling, to the stand kind of as my client who got hit by the tire. That's exactly right. And I was able to convey to the jury that in the event that this jury found that the city of Detroit was liable for the actions, which they clearly were, yeah. we knew they were, yeah. that the monies that they were going to award were going to be safeguarded. They were going to be protected. And I implored the jury to award a large sum of money to ensure that this individual who has suffered greatly, horrifically, Nobody could ever, ever be compensated appropriately for the damages that have incurred, that those monies were going to be utilized to enhance and improve his life. Yeah. And that was, so let's talk a little bit about this guy had kind of a hard life oh, yeah. uh, and he didn't have any siblings, Darren. So, so his parents were dead. He, he had like an estranged sister, I believe, who was in Japan, who he hadn't talked to in like 20 years. When he dies, what happens to the money? Yeah. So we also did some planning with him. We were able to create an estate plan to ensure that, when I say estate plan, a will, 
yeah. to ensure that upon his death, he would direct where that money was going to go. From the, and from the case, That's right? right. And in this particular case, he wanted to make sure that it went to veterans, to causes for abuse, by, uh, alcoholism, drug abuse, to ensure that those people who are suffering from this horrible illness right we're going to benefit from these funds and that also i believe played heavily on the jury the jury heard that in the event that he dies that those monies were not going to just be wasted they were going to go to a good use through a not-for-profit organization to help others yeah and i it, so that brings up two points first of all is it true, like, when you die, you can give anyone your money? Oh, yeah. I Pretty mean, much anyone. You can give any. You can just do. I could just say I, they, my neighbor, who I've never met, right. I want all my money to go to him. You can do whatever right. you and want. And, John, right? I strongly suggest that you turn your entire estate over to me. <laughs> I mean, we're friends. But, but also, John, you can give it. For years, there was this concept that you couldn't really give it to pets. Yeah. People want to give it to their dogs or their cats. And Michigan has recently recognized that you can create what are called pet trust so you can actually say i'm giving my money i'm setting aside money for the benefit of my animal yeah their lifetime incredible so yes the answer is you can give it to anyone and nobody is automatically entitled to an inheritance so for example we get calls all the time i'm the eldest son my dad disinherited me he can't do that absolutely can you have no inherent right to inherit from your father the only person that is protected is a spouse there are rights that exist for a surviving spouse because we don't want people simply handing the money to the mistress to the detriment of the surviving spouse. Yeah. There's public policy to protect those people so they can elect against wills that disinherit them. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. There's this like Netflix show or on something I saw where this like very wealthy, like multi hundreds of millions of dollar Harris from Europe who had no uh, kids who was kind of a loner, who was like sick, wealthy, gave all of her money to her German shepherd. And this German shepherd like like went around the country on a yacht and had this like team of people that like took care of it. But you can do that, I guess. You can do whatever you want, right? That's right. You have full control over the disposition of your assets following your death. What? So one thing is I think for lawyers out there, if you have a client like we did in the city of Detroit case, who is so injured, especially brain injury, where they can't make decisions for themselves, or you have a minor, you have a young child, uh, you have to find a probate attorney and you should establish some protections. Number one, it's the right thing to do. Ethically, I think I had a responsibility knowing that my client was so brain damaged that he couldn't care for himself. I have a responsibility to make sure that his that he's taken care of. So that's number one. And number two, what you said is important. When I go before the jury, I mean, I can't say, hey, here's this guy. There's no protections. You should give a big verdict and the money's just going to be squandered away. And, uh, you know, they're not going to want to give a verdict under those circumstances. So if you have a client, I think as a lawyer, it's number one, ethical, you have to do it. And number two, it makes sense from, from, a case strategic standpoint that these are things you need to do. And I've done it with you uh, where I've had a drug addict client. And I've said, Darren, my client is a drug addict. She is high. She was high at her deposition. I don't know if you remember this case and I'm not going to name the client, but 
Uh, she goes missing. Her husband's saying she's going on heroin uh, bends. And she has a case that's worth about a million dollars. What do we do? That's right. And in that case, we had to go to court and uh, petition the probate court to set up protections through you to help this person, right? And John, what most lawyers who don't have the creativity and skill that you have will do in those crazy scenarios where their client is having difficulty is they end up resolving the case and to the detriment of what the maximum value should be. Your brilliance was creatively working with my office to go through this strategy. It is the ethically correct thing to do. Right. And it absolutely benefits the client. And in this case, with the city of Detroit, a very large and appropriate verdict was handed out. There are lots of lawyers who would never have done what you did in those circumstances. Yeah, and you know, we had, I had a case with uh, Figer's office. So you were helped on too, where uh, you were actually the probate lawyer on that too, where uh, we had an orphan who oh, yeah. was killed at a, at a place and it was horrible, horrible, but there, he was an orphan. So there was, where does the money go? Now you can go find distant relatives to funnel money to, but a jury's not going to like that either. And that's not ethically right either. So you got to have a probate person to go in and take a look at this and set up protections and trusts and all this other stuff that, that you do. Precisely. There are strategies and working with a law firm like ours who has extensive experience doing this can help develop those strategies to enhance the value of the cases. Yeah, it's There's good no for everybody. And, and you know, John, over the years, we've worked many times in which just simply gaining control of the case for a lawyer, it's paramount to not just work with anybody, but to work with somebody who knows how to gain control over the case by securing the client. Not a day goes by that I don't get a call from a personal injury lawyer it's usually who's me. fighting, it's who's usually fighting me. over control over the case. So there's a lot of opportunity with creativity and strategy to get value out of cases by working with appropriate You partners. have to. You have I think it's malpractice not to and it's a violation of our of our ethical duties. But tell me okay, this is cases gone wild. Tell me some more crazy cases. Well, I got a funny one that relates to a name. We were in court in uh, Wayne County and the client was a Vietnamese individual with a unique name. I'm what gonna, was the name? I'm gonna slightly change it here for protection, but the name was Fukyu. I'm not making this stuff up, Fukyu. Fukyu. So no, fuck I go you. to check in to the, to the judge. I, I, um, I give my case number, the court clerk says, how do you how do you pronounce this? I said because they have to read the case. That's name. right. They gotta, For our listeners, when they call the case, it's like hear ye, hear ye. It's not yeah. quite as formal in Wayne County, but it's like now calling the case of. That's right. And in this particular case, packed courtroom on a Friday in Wayne County. I say Fuku. She says, "Say it one more time." I say it one more time. She goes, "Okay, I got it." The judge calls the case, not the clerk. This in this case, the judge says, "Calling the case of Fuku." She starts stumbling. And the clerk, without missing a beat, says, no, judge, fuck you. <laughs> and the whole, courtroom, the whole courtroom bursts in laughter. So, you know, as, as I was describing to you, John, there's not a day that goes by that we don't have an anecdote that comes into the office at the water cooler that we're sharing. Yeah. Because we're dealing with real people, real life problems. You can't make this stuff Right, up. and you kind of have an intersection of everything. Family law, injury law, dying. I mean, you kind of deal with it all. 
Did you see, in fact, that's funny that you say that because there's a guy that just has a great police misconduct case. If you're listening, Mr. Fuck You, please call my office because I saw it on the news. Did you hear about this? No, I'm wondering if it's the same person. I, the guy's name was Fuck You, but that's P-H-U-C and then like Y-U. So the police pull him over for like speeding or something. And they say, sir, uh, what's your name? Oh. License and registration. And he turns on him and he goes, fuck you. And the, the cop brutalizes this guy oh, because he thought that he was saying that. And he had to like prove he's like, no, like, you know, I'm really, he, I'm really, that's my person. name, man. That's fuck you. Incredible. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's crazy. What, right. what other crazy stories do you have of cases gone wild? We got a lot of fights over ashes. Lots of fights over ashes, cremains. We had one very recently that we successfully prevailed. The urn and ashes were sitting on the surviving spouse's mantle for 35 years following the death of her husband. When the death occurred 35 years ago, the children who were not children of the spouse were devastated. They never got to fully mourn the loss of their father who had remarried. They never got to have the ashes and they were devastated. Well, eventually the surviving spouse dies and the ashes are sitting on the mantle and a fight breaks out. Who has the right to the ashes? The surviving spouse's family or the ashes who are the husband's children? Who has the right to this? Is it personal property? Like the Lego set, the knives set, the right. wall, the painting right. on the wall, or is it a body? Can you have possession and control And it's not over about the money. Like you can't just say the ashes are worth, you know, $1,000 or whatever. This is very sentimental. I mean. Yeah, emotional. So we ultimately prevailed on behalf of the children of the husband. Well, what's the law on and that? And the, the law is a little murky. The law speaks about the spouse having the right to taking the cremains and burying the cremains. She never buried them. She put them on her mantle. She then dies 35 years later. And the court ruled that the ashes would then be turned over to the children of the husband. And they were elated. They finally got to truly have closure to the death of their father 35 years later by receiving the cremains. Yeah, man, there's a lot of dead body cases. I mean, we've talked about them on the show. We had uh, a medical malpractice case where they declared a oh, yeah. baby dead and came back to life. Uh, we had uh, a case with, uh, we talked about with Figer's firm, same thing, where they put somebody in a body bag and then the morgue, they open them up and they're breathing. I got a case call yesterday, dude, uh, from a lawyer. He's, which it's crazy. This guy uh, was at a house and you was using some drugs and uh, they thought he overdosed. So they call the EMS, the EMS comes. The EMS works on the guy. They go to the family and they're like, we're sorry, he's died. Okay, your 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 brother has passed away. The family's wailing, crying. Oh my God, we lost him. Well, they go to put the guy in a body bag and he starts breathing again. It's actually, I know that case because we, we've got it, the guardianship piece of it. What happened is that they actually sent the body to be the organs to be harvested. And at the place where they harvest the organs, they blew oxygen 
into the body and the person was still alive. We opened up a guardianship. Wait, what? Incredible. This is a different they, case. That's they, a different they case. They thought the person had died. And again, did they put him in a body bag? Yes. Did it, they put him in a, in a like ambulance or something? I, I don't know the, how they transported him, but John, this stuff happens. You see these stories on television when you're watching these movies. These things actually do happen. People who have been pronounced dead come back to life. It's rare, but we've seen it happen. So they took this person to a morgue. To harvest the To organs. start cutting them open and yes. taking all their body parts, their body organs. And the person starts breathing. They blew air in their lungs. What do you mean they blew air? I don't know the, the, the technical medical piece of this. But after the person was there, they blew air in the lungs. And the person revived, is alive, and we are establishing guardianship. They're alive today? Alive. This just happened two days ago. In terms of and they the, the started case. breathing. Yes, dude, that's different than my case that and, I just got see, yesterday. I thought, I thought these were. This is it, insane. Right, these are wild fact patterns. Poke me but, when whoever yes. is out there. Please make sure that I'm really dead. Yeah. Shake me when you poke come me. to get me to take me away. Amen. I agree with you. Make sure that I am cold as ice, out and done. Because who knows, they may wake up. We, that we've had f now on this show four people who've come back Lazarus style from the dead on cases gone wild. And we're on like episode 14. This is crazy. Well, apparently there's a lot of people dying who have not yet quite died. Yeah, that's crazy. I, so I heard uh, that you, Rosa Parks is mm -hmm. obviously uh, near and dear to many Detroiters hearts mm -hmm. and anyone in the civil rights community. You know, I do a lot of civil rights work. Uh, and Rosa Parks, for those young people, because to me it's second, it, it's, it's you know, of course we know who Rosa Parks is. But for those people who don't know, Rosa Parks is a civil rights icon. Rosa Parks uh, was one of the first uh, nationally, in, during the civil rights area, era, where African Americans were segregated on public transportation. It was this separate but equal, go to the back of the bus. And they made the African Americans sit at the back of the bus. The whites could sit at the front. Those were considered better seats. The blacks had to go to the back of the bus. Horrible, despicable. And she was one of the first people down south. I think it was Montgomery, Alabama, but it was somewhere down in the deep racist south where she said, no, this is wrong. And she she refused to move and she be, there became a court battle over it and she became a civil rights legend and icon. But she's actually from Detroit, isn't she? Because I somebody told me that you did something with Rosa Parks. That's correct. And my father also was deeply involved in the civil rights movement. And when I was younger, I remembered meeting Rosa Parks, marching no down way. Woodward Avenue in the front. We marched in a civil rights march down Woodward Avenue. Little did I know that years later she would pass away here in the city of Detroit. Because she lived in in Detroit, didn't she correct. live over like in Cork? Or she, I think it was Corktown or something, but... Well, famously, Mike Illich, the Illich family, paid for her rent during the years later years of her life. She died here in the city of Detroit, and her nephew contacted me to open up the probate estate for Rosa Parks. They had... The nephews were in a dispute with a longtime caregiver because the there were some disputes over the will, and we opened up the probate estate. And that probate estate, the opening of it, caused national news. It was the first time and the only time that I've been on the front page of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal 
quoted about the opening of Rosa Parks probate estate. That estate was widely interesting to people because of her iconic nature. Right. The fact that there was a dispute between a longtime caregiver and a family, and it went on for many, many years. I didn't stay on the case the whole time. I was on at the beginning, and eventually it resolved itself. But that was a big part of my early career when this occurred in November of 2005, in which prominently my name was on newspapers all over the country. Oh, what an honor, too. I mean, that's Tremendous that's honor. And, you know, I, I have great re uh, reverence for the fact that I had the honor of opening up this, in per this person who is so important in American history, her probate estate, and I hope that I honored the family appropriately in the manner in which I conducted myself. Yeah, that's amazing to be able to do that, Darren. What, you know, it seems to me like some of the, the nastiest and, and most publicized are with famous people or very wealthy people. It seems yeah. like, is there like more litigation over this? Because rich people, I guess, there's more to fight about generally, and they can afford to pay lawyers to fight about it. I don't... Well, people think when they hear the word probate, they start panicking. I have to go to probate. Oh my, there's going to be a fight. There's going to be litigation. We're going to incur lots of expenses. Well, remember the vast, and I mean 99 point some odd percent of estates have no fights. They're very procedural. Because they, they plan don't cost a lot for it, right? Yes. Generally they plan. It's those anomalies, those very sexy stories that we hear about. The stories of of Rosa Parks, the stories of Aretha Franklin, of Prince, the singer Prince. These stories make news. What happened with Prince? I didn't... Well, when Prince died um, in Minneapolis, there was a dispute over who actually were his family. And people were coming forward no claiming that they were children of Prince and submitting themselves to DNA to assert and prove that they were children of Prince, because I don't think Prince had an estate plan. But and Prince had, Prince's name was a symbol, remember? It was right. the Formally artist. Known. So for those who don't know, Prince was a very famous music artist. He changed his name from, was it Prince, Prince? to a symbol, the and Prince he, he symbol. He did that because he was in a dispute with the music label. They owned his music. So he said, well, you're going to own my music. You're going to own my name. Fine. I'll be the artist formerly known as Prince. And that is how it occurred. Now, even somebody as established as Prince, yeah. even somebody with multi-millionaire, uh, with multi-millionaire, sure. and have lawyers all around him his whole career, didn't appropriately plan. And we saw the same thing with Aretha Franklin. This is very typical among artists, and many people just simply don't want to plan, yeah, because they don't want to face mortality, even though they know that they're going to pass away. They leave it to others to pick up the pieces. Yeah, and that so. Aretha Franklin was a very big thing. So what happened there? Did you follow that at all with Aretha Franklin? I did. I followed the basics, but ultimately the court ruled that that will of which she slept on the couch that was underneath her couch cushion became the controlling will for her estate. And the Oakland County judges of the Oakland County judge eventually addressed that issue and the case is still but they had to have like a trial, I think, over it, right? Yeah, there was I some mean, kind like of evidence. witnesses come in That's and right. they say, this was the will or, you know, this is where we found the will and all kinds of stuff with that, right? Right. And people will ask me, hey, Darren, do I have to have a lawyer to do a will? You could go to LegalZoom. You could go online. You can go to OfficeMax and pick up a packet. You can go online and create a will. However, you're taking a tremendous risk. You're doing it without the instruction 
guidance of a lawyer. You don't have any people, professionals who are witnessing how the event is taking place. So if you do it in, a, in an environment where the lawyers are thinking about challenges, thinking about how it will play out, you are ensuring and mitigating, reducing the opportunity for these types of fights to occur. Now, it doesn't mean there won't be a fight, but most fights that occur are generally not fights about the legitimacy of the will, but fights about contents, interpretation of the will. What did the person mean? Who gets the knives? Who gets the Christmas ornaments? Things like that. I got a story you just reminded me of as I'm discussing this. We had a case in which in 1971, this father had purchased an old beat up Camaro as a project to work with his son to refurbish. Right. The goal was to refurbish this Camaro so that his son could take it to prom with his prom date. They work on the vehicle. The vehicle gets restored. It's beautiful. I've seen pictures. And they go to the prom party. And during the prom party, before the leaving to prom, the vehicle is stolen off the street. No way. No prom vehicle. 35 years later. This man who had bought it for his son is on his dying days, terminally ill. The son gets a phone call from the Livonia police. I found, we found a car from 1971. Stop they it. found the Camaro 35 years later. And we litigated. Now, remember, this son wanted the vehicle because it reminded yeah, him of his it wasn't. Youth. It probably it's, wasn't just the money oh. or the value of the Camaro. It was that specific Camaro Precisely. to be with his dad. It's Connection sentimental. Connection father. Yeah. And we litigate things that far exceed the value because emotions control litigation. Right. And you're right. willing to spend lots of money on it. So we ultimately litigated whether the car, which had been chopped up many times, was still the car from 1971. Even though the VIN on some of the pieces existed, the car had changed its nature yeah, over yeah. many, many years, as you can imagine, a refurbished and restored car. And we ultimately settled the case because the son was worried. We were, on the, we were in the middle of the jury trial. But who the else son, was trying to take the car? Oh, the person who owned it, who had bought it, unsuspecting. So they bought somebody, basically a stolen That's right. Vehicle. 35 years later, chopped up. And he himself had restored the vehicle. So this vehicle had changed in See, that's a tough thing because who's right. somebody's going to lose that really sh shouldn't lose. That's right. There but were two both people. people can't win, right? Correct. In the middle of the jury trial, both parties recognized that the risk of losing was too large. They settled. My client ultimately got the car and paid some money. Paid some money to the because guy. Because he wanted that connection. But he, he had the connection, right? So what's the law in that? This is like you hear about like these paintings, right? Like if you buy a stolen painting and then they find out that like, you know, it was from a, a, a museum heist. Holocaust. Holocaust, remember, and, yeah, with the right. Nazis taking all that stuff and then these these paintings went over. What's the law on that? Like, like let's say I go to the art store. I buy a painting because I love it. I put it in my house for 10 years and then it we find out it was like rated, rated from like the French Museum by the Nazis or something. 1942 what's the law yeah, generally the law in these circumstances you can never obtain good title good ownership from a theft 
Even if you don't know. Even if you so don't even know. So even if I go to like the most, re- the DI, the uh, Detroit Institute Art says, we're, we're going to sell you this, John Marco. Yeah. This is a beautiful painting and it's good title. And I say, okay, here's, here's a bunch of money. Even if they tell me that, it's technically not mine. That's correct. There are there was a case actually recently at the DIA that during an exhibit, a touring exhibit, they recognized that the piece of art that was there was probably looted. And the general concept is that you cannot acquire good title from a stolen item. So in this particular case, the problem with the Camaro was it was hard to know, is it actually the original Camaro that was stolen? Right. Or is one piece for example, they stamped the VIN number, I think, on the engine block yeah, and yeah, on the yeah. inner door and some other place. But the car had changed in characteristic over these years. So it was a legitimate argument. And two people who had been injured were fighting over control. Over right. It. And they both had kind of meritorious arguments on their case. No See, question. that law, the law is, you know, is not black and white. You know, there's a framework that works 99% of the time. But it's those 1% where it's the gray area. I mean, how could you possibly conceive uh, of, of what's the right answer in that case? That's interesting. That's right. And John, you know, because you've been doing this a long time, the great lawyers know how to work the edges of the law, know how to find unique interpretations of the law that may have not yet been thought of. And that's the creativity that great litigators and great lawyers bring to the table. They're able to read a statute and say, yeah, but what about? And yeah. then proceed with a narrative to see if it will work. And working on those edges often find wins. And you and I have experienced that many times. Yeah, and all that, I think we're gonna run out of time, but I'm getting the, the, the big hook from the producers over here. But that reminds me of one last story. I don't, do you remember when Barry Bonds was going uh, for like... For the record. For the record, and he had had all those home runs. Do you remember that ball? I remember. Do you remember? The there fight was, over the ball. There was a fight over a ball. So this was supposed to be... It was like his last home run ball, they thought at the time. And the ball went into the crowd, and these two dudes fought over the ball. There was a like massive fight. And there was like some wealthy guy and then some other guy. And they're in this like pit of like all these people. Imagine, imagine, you know, like in football when there's a fumble and everybody dives on the ball. That's what this was like. And it was on TV and they came out and they both had the ball. One guy had one hand on the ball. The other guy had the other hand and they sued each other over who was going to get this ball because they thought it was going to be like a million dollar ball. That's right. Uh, and then it ended up, they spent all this money and, and they ended up compromising or whatever. But then Barry Bonds hit another home run. So the ball became worth like, you know, $5,000 or something. Right. But it, those, are the, those are the interesting cases that keep us busy, right? That's right. And we can't, uh, we can't, we're, we're like magnets for wild cases. Yeah. We're magnets yeah. for it. And because- The wilder, in, the better, man. That's right. And most people, we become immune they become normalized day by day after doing this for so many years. But the reality is, on any given day, a unique and wild story that could be a television show or a movie. It's our life. Up. That's our life. It's our life. It's like ER doctors. When you're working on and you're seeing these crazy things every single day, like cases gone wild, you it becomes almost normalized for you. But... I love it. I know that you love it, Darren. And thank you for being on the show. It was a pleasure and honor to have you talk about these cases gone wild. 
You're an excellent probate attorney. I'll, I continue to trust you. And with your great firm, you have great people with all your probate needs. So thank you so much for being on the show, Darren. Love doing this, John. So uh, thanks everybody for listening to Cases Gone Wild brought to you by Marco Law. I hope you had fun today. I know these cases were crazy and wild. We are, appreciate your membership and viewership. If you or someone you know need help, don't forget, give us a call. Marco Law, you can go to our website, marcolaw.com, or give us a call at 313-777-7LAW. Mr. Finling, great. Go to him for your probate needs. If you need help, give us a call. We'll see you next time. This has been Cases Gone Wild.